All right, we are back, and I think I have to uh, basically segue from our second segment to this item, which is that a 20th century fresco of Jesus that an amateur artist took upon herself to, quote, restore, unquote, has now become a major tourist attraction in Spain. Yes, as we reported on this program earlier, the church painting in the town of Borgia was for decades a little-known piece of religious art by a minor Spanish artist. Now that Cecilia Jimenez has disfigured it, it has found a new fate as an international icon used to sell products around the world. The image appears on t-shirts and cell phone covers, coffee mugs, and wine labels. Here's the part we like best. Jimenez's lawyers have begun investigating whether all the notoriety her work uh, has achieved can be turned into a profit, albeit with an aim to help charity. Yes, apparently the possibility of money attached to this botched restoration has gotten a lawyer involved. Imagine that. But noted the Christian Science Monitor, the fresco depicts Christ with a crown of thorns before crucifixion in a style known as Ecce Homo, which translates as Behold the Man. It stood in peaceful obscurity since it was painted in 1930 until Jimenez, a longtime devotee of the work, decided it needed to be rescued from flaking caused by the damp church air. As word of this artistic travesty has spread across the world, <laughs> the solemn Eke Homo quickly took on a less dignified identity. Eke Mono. Behold the monkey. Of course, now something unexpected has happened. The town has morphed into a tourist destination for people who want to see this for themselves. The crush has been so big that the Santi Spiritus Foundation that owns the church and sanctuary recently started charging admission. One euro per visitor. About a thousand people paid admission last week and the number of visitors has averaged a hundred a day currently. Jimenez's lawyers say she has no interest in a cut of what the foundation is charging people to see the fresco, but they are investigating possible copyright infringements of what she created. If she has rights, says lawyer Antonio Valcarreras Rivera, Jimenez could pursue payments from those using the image to sell products, although whatever she earns would go to charity. Well, we got a feeling what would go to charity after Mr. Valcarreras Rivera takes his 30 to 40 percent. We imagine he's looking very carefully as to what her rights may be in this case. Meanwhile, the Sancti Spiritus Foundation is stuck with its own legal bind about what to do with the fresco. Should it restore the painting to its original state, or leave him and his image on the church walls? We hope not. Or try, as experts say, it is possible to separate the two. Said him and his lawyers in a statement, she is thankful for the many messages of support she's received from around the world. And no, Radio Parallax is unable to confirm whether any of those messages of support came from the UC Davis Primate Center. We will continue to follow this remarkable story as developments come along. I'm a monkey! I'm a monkey! You know, I really don't know how to follow up that last uh, item, but I think what I'll do is a quote from a wonderful piece in Vanity Fair by A.A. A. Gill about gay marriage. I read this piece last week while sitting in an airport terminal and could not help but laugh out loud repeatedly. To quote from Mr. Gill, If fairness and equality don't clinch the argument for gay marriage, 
consider its positive effect on an entrenched modern monstrosity, the wedding itself. From ring to dress to cake, heterosexual nuptials need a radical rethink, as does the other end of the equation, divorce. Noted the piece. No aspect of our 21st century lives is more parched of gayness than weddings. They are desperate for a fairy makeover. We heteros should be begging gays to come and give the best day of our lives a dressing down by joining in. Weddings are a kitsch-style crash of appalling taste, snotty tissue, blisters, lip gloss, dad's dancing, and hypoglycemia. A wedding is like porn in that it promises far more than it's ever going to deliver. Unlike porn, we witness the scene with our grandparents and our kids. Noted Gill, the average American wedding costs $27,000. The average American household takes in about $50,000. A wedding is the biggest expenditure many will ever make on one day. And the event can get far, far more fiscally incontinent than that. This average doesn't include the aggregated costs incurred by everyone else. Flights, hotels, hats, dresses, stag weekends, hen weekends, and the presents. Noted Gill, viewed from the pews, weddings are theater produced by straight amateurs using their own money. The resulting spectacle is what a dog show would be like if it were organized by the dogs. When gays remake weddings, the lighting will be the first thing to improve. Secondly, no one's going to think that a fatless steak fryer is a suitable present. And the flowers won't look ordered for a clown's funeral. The music will also be a lot classier. You won't have to walk down the aisle to Meatloaf singing, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. He goes on. The history of queer culture shows us that gay men are the trailblazers. Where they go... Heterosexual women follow, dragging reluctant straight men behind them, who in turn bring Texans. That's how civilization and musical theater evolve. Not to mention catering. The cake has to go. The original wedding cake was a biscuit broken over the bride's head to represent what was about to happen to her hymen. But that's vulgar. Today, the happy couple jointly hold a very phallic knife and together force it through the virginal white icing into soft, moist sweetness. And in America, for those who are slow at symbolism, they then push cake into each other's face as a sort of cakealingus. He goes on. Surely the right thing, the conservative thing, would be to get as many people into marriages as possible. The really radical right hair shirt and burning torches thing would be to insist that gays get married. Because without wanting to be indelicate, all the stuff that gets the religiously intense so book-thumpingly incandescent about homosexuality is all the stuff that goes on before you're married. If you want to stop them having fun up against walls and behind sofas, just let them get married. They'll soon learn that there's precious little cake in the face after the wedding. And he closes the piece with, I understand the religious right find this all very vexing, very upsetting. So I suggest we give them something in return to make them feel better. This may seem radical, but just consider it for a moment. What if we swap them gay marriage for divorce? After all, that's the greatest threat to the cornerstone of marriage. We will ban divorce. You get married and you stay married. If it doesn't work out, you might just go and marry someone else. There are Christian precedents for this. 
You will be responsible for your children and accountable to all your spouses. It's the divorce that's the desperate cancer of community life. The average divorce is likely to cost around $25,000. That's money that goes out of the family, out of health care, out of education, and out of the kitty for your daughter's wedding. According to one recent study, divorce costs the country as much as $112 billion a year. 50% of first-time marriages fail. The wedding and the divorce together could set the couple and their family back more than $50,000. Better to cut the misery and recrimination, the affidavits and the poverty, the guilt and the tears, and just enlarge the family. You could use the money to go on holiday, to build an annex for visiting spouses, or to buy a decent wedding present for your gay uncle. And you know, we got about four minutes left. There's just no chance we're going to end this program on a serious note. So let's quote from a letter to the editor that I like. Not to us, the editor, but to the editors at Vanity Fair. Wrote Jeff Utley from Texas. I'm from England, where on most corners are betting shops, those house-legal bookies who take wagers on anything from the outcomes of soccer matches to U.S. presidential elections. Graydon Carter's description of how America's financial trading is done in parlors strikes a chord with me. I've often wondered why I have to go to Las Vegas to bet on a football game, but I can walk into my local stockbroker or log on to my trading account to buy futures. Isn't betting on the unknown outcome of a crop's harvest or how much gold will come out of the ground the very definition of gambling? It's probably wiser to bet on football games in a casino than to take on the high-frequency trading computers and risk one's money in the hands of some Madoff-style financier. Interesting point for Mr. Utley, don't you think? All right, in the weeks to come, we're going to try and uh, talk about a new scientist article titled A Brief History of Our Genome, a wonderful follow-up on uh, Sam Keen's talk with us some weeks back. But I think what I'll close with today is uh, another article from the same issue of the magazine about ambergris. And yes, the alternative pronunciation is ambergris. But I must say, I've puzzled over this substance ever since my dad told me about it while down in Half Moon Bay as a boy. I was told it was very valuable and sometimes washed up on the beach. But like Christopher Kemp, who uh, wrote the piece for New Scientist, I've always found it hard to get the real skinny on what this substance was about. To quote from the piece, When I first heard about the object, describing an 800-kilogram piece of ambergris that washed up in New Zealand, he said, I went online thinking I would learn everything I needed to know in minutes. As a former scientist, I'm used to being able to access whatever information I want. But I found almost no useful information at all. So he wrote, I began visiting libraries, leafing through encyclopedias, reading old ledgers and journals, and calling museum curators and ambergris traders. It was as if I'd fallen down a rabbit hole. More than anything else, my motivation was the lack of reliable information about ambergris. Even descriptions of its odor seemed inadequate. I decided to do everything possible to experience it for myself. From my initial online search, I learned a few important things. First, ambergris is an intestinal secretion of sperm whales that washes ashore with the tide and has a complex and hard-to-describe smell. It has been used for centuries as an ingredient in perfume and also as a medicine, aphrodisiac, incense, and flavoring. Its name means gray amber, although it is not amber. He goes on to explain how sperm whales, which can weigh as much as 50 tons, have to eat a lot of food each day, about a ton. 
and uh, one of their favorite foods is squid. Surveying the stomach contents of 17 sperm whales killed in the Azores back in 1993, cetologists found the remains of almost 29,000 squid from 40 different species. It is undigested squid that starts the process of making ambergris. That's the piece which I did not know. Like cows and other ruminants, sperm whales have four stomachs. Food passes from one to the next, being digested along the way. Steadily, these stomachs begin to fill with indigestible remains, which coalesce into a dense, glittering mass. Every couple of days, the sperm whale will vomit this into the ocean. This is described as quite normal. Adding that despite persistent reports this is where ambergris comes from, it is not. Notes the piece as oceanographer Robert Clark explains, the production of actual ambergris requires abnormal processes. Occasionally the mass of beaks from the squid find its way into a whale's intestines, and as the jagged mass passes from the stomach, it chafes and irritates the intestinal lining. Passed along the intestines, it becomes a tangled, solid, saturated with feces mass, which obstructs the rectum. The sperm whale's GI tract responds by increasing water absorption from the lower intestines, and gradually the mass becomes a concretion, in essence, a smooth and striated boulder. Feces can now make their way past the shrunken boulder on the wall of the intestines. The concretion, meanwhile, grows larger. This process reportedly occurs in just 1% of sperm whales. The whale sometimes evacuates this obstruction, and sometimes it may prove fatal. Either way, this is how it gets released into the ocean, where it may float for decades, slowly maturing as it gets oxidized by the seawater and degraded by sunlight and eroded by wave action, until finally it lands on somebody's beach. Along the way, the smell of this object softens and is replaced by a rich, complex odor that's been compared to fine tobacco, the wood in old churches, the smell of the tide, sandalwood, fresh earth, and seaweed in the sun. Robert Clark wrote that it reminded him of Brazil nuts. Whatever it smells of, mature ambergris is highly prized by perfumers who value it for two properties. First, it's a fixative, slowing the breakdown of a fragrance on the skin and making the scent last longer. Equally important, it has a singular odor. Never to smell that odor for himself, Christopher Kemp went searching. But noted that he went to the perfume industry. He found that the merest mention of ambergris can change a conversation. Talking to people become taciturn, wary, wary of revealing too much. Anyone familiar with the value and scarcity will say nothing or respond in generalities. This apparently comes about because of a tangled web of restrictions on the importation and exportation of this material. Anyway, the author finally went to the University of Otago in New Zealand and found someone who had a chunk for him to smell. He concludes by noting, even from several feet away, a powerful and revelatory odor fills my nostrils. I smell old cow dung, lumps of wet and rotting wood, tobacco, drying seaweed, and the grassy open spaces of Long Beach. Noting beneath it, there is something else, something indescribable. When I leave, the smell stays with me for hours. Only when I wake up the following morning do I realize I'm unable to smell it anymore. And I miss it immediately. All right, if you have a chunk of ambergris, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We want to smell this stuff for ourselves. See what the fuss is about. But that does it for the show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. 
Our thanks to Anthony Curdo for his wonderful book, The Time for Justice, How the Excesses of Time Have Broken Our Civil Justice System. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. As I was uh, walking down by the seaside, I saw a large whale floating on the tide. He measured as long as a great schooner stick. I looked in by gum. It was old Moby Dick.